1: My guest on this week's show might not have any hobbies or interests, but she is one of the most deeply original and hilarious stand-up comedians on the scene right now. So that has to count for something, right?
2: We all needed someone to tell us that. At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all of us were waking up inspired by someone else's Instagram, just like, oh my god, I think I'm a hiker now.
1: No, you're not, bitch.
2: (laughs) No, you're not. Oh my god, I think I solve puzzles now. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's still in the box. I've seen you. (laughs) And you might be like, well, Atsuko, let's go. Let's go. what are your interests? You know, what are your interests if it's not farming, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I don't think I particularly have any. <laughs> but hey, you know what? That's also a personality too. Yeah, and that should be empowering. Yes, my fellow basic person. Yes, yes, yes. If you're like, I also don't have hobbies or interests. That's okay. That's okay, look at me, look at me. You are still a whole person. You are. you are. I'm proud of you. Yes, I'm proud. Yes. Give it up for my, my fellow Facebook kids.
1: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Atsuko Okatsuka from her excellent new HBO special, The Intruder. Atsuko may not have known what to do with herself in the earliest days of the pandemic, But she figured it out pretty quickly, delivering a series of viral clips on TikTok and Instagram, mostly co-starring her grandmother, all while putting together what is easily one of my favorite stand-up hours of 2022. She has such a unique story from her early childhood spent in Taiwan and Japan before immigrating to America at just 10 years old and remaining undocumented for years as she lived with her mother and grandmother in a garage in Los Angeles. Atsuko may not quite be a household name yet, but she is getting there, and I was just really excited to get the chance to talk to her at what is arguably the biggest moment of her comedy career. So here's me with Atsuko Okatsuka. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, Welcome. It's great to meet you. Um, And we're talking at this really big moment where your HBO special is about to premiere, um, The Intruder. Um, So... Yeah, how how are you feeling? What, what what what's going on with you right now, and and how are you feeling about this special about to to hit the hit the world?
2: I'm so excited, but you know it, it's happened so fast that we shot the special like a month ago.
1: Oh wow, that is really fast,
2: right? Yeah, and it already comes out. So it was like I shot it a month ago, and then it was going to come out two months after that. So that's all I've been working on. You know is. The editing of it, the color correction, the sound mix, the trailer, the key art, you know, it takes a lot of my, uh, yeah, a lot of my creative energy has been geared towards it. And then, yeah, and and press and things like that. So as I feel things, you know, I think it's it's easy for me to shove it down. I probably won't really, really feel it until everything's calmed down and it's out, you know. There's fear for sure in the excitement too. I am, oh my goodness, I hope people relate and like it and see themselves in it, you know, because ultimately that's why I started doing comedy, you know? Yeah.
1: It seems like there's already, you've been getting a lot of great feedback, even just on the trailer. Um, From what I've seen, people are just very excited. Are you feeling that?
2: I do feel that. Yeah. I, uh, I went to film school or I went to art school and studied film within it. <laughs> I'm careful to say film school because
1: That's not film school.
2: Yeah, yeah, did you like make mumble jumble movies? Like did you <laughs> did you do just shots of trees and then sound effects that Sounded like, you know, it was saran rap, you know, just rustling around in the background. Or did you make like narrative films, you know, but um, but because of that, I I know how to edit and I edit a lot of my own social media uh, videos and stuff. And so I had a big part in even like the trailer. And so I'm I'm excited that it's speaking to people and the right jokes were in there just enough, you know, giving just enough so that people kind of know what to look out for, you know for the whole hour.
1: And you had Tig Nataro as a director, which is pretty cool.
2: Yes. Yeah. Tig is a friend of mine and an idol too. You know, she's so amazing. She's who I always name. I feel like when I talk about my favorite comedian,
1: were you a fan of hers before you got the chance to meet her or, or how, what has your relationship um, been like with her?
2: Yeah, she, I was a fan of hers. And then we met right before the pandemic. Uh, there was this Netflix stand-up competition series that they were filming. And I was one of thirty three comedians. And then what you do is it's kind of like the voice. You do your stand up set in front of an audience. And then there's Tig, Neil Brennan, and Dion Cole. And those three comedians are sort of like will act as mentors if they choose uh you to be wow. on their team. Is this
1: something that 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 never came out or it never happened came out. To, oh wow.
2: Oh what happened was the world ended.
1: Yeah. So they were like, we gotta stop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and a lot of things ended, but also a lot of new things picked up because of it. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, we started filming like, gosh, like a few days before LA was told we were going on lockdown. But that's how we met because she chose me to be on her team. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's who I wanted <laughs> to choose me, you know? And yeah, so then the next round was, yeah, it was 33 comedians down to 13, so I was part of the 13 and then, you know, all of that shut down. But because of that, I got to meet Tig, you know, and um, we really, we make each other laugh and we, enjoys each, we enjoy each other's company. So it was cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's pretty cool to like go from in 2019 being part of this competition to three years later, she's directing your HBO special. I mean, that's a pretty oh, big Oh, 2020.
2: Loop. I'm telling yeah. you, this is this was March yeah. 2020. 2020,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's cool. There is a redemption story for everyone during the pandemic.
1: Um, what do you feel like you learned from her uh, as a director? What did she contribute to the the process for you?
2: Well, she already has such experience. You know, she's unapologetically herself. And I think that really, that's what I love so much about her. And I think she sort of reminded me that that's why i'm here too you know because i'm unapologetically myself and it's okay to let things breathe you know let um and that it is for taping and so you know the experience that she's already had having taped a bunch of specials and having had directed as well as a stand up comedian um it yeah it was it was cool having the support and you know and just being able to visualize how the special would look working with a dp she was really cool
1: yeah i feel like these these specials especially a a first big hour long special on a major platform like hbo is a introduction of you to a, a bigger audience and and something that you must have thought about you know how do you want to present yourself to that audience so what what were some of the you know discussions you either had with with her or other people um in your life about what you wanted to put out there in this special
2: discussions well I mean I had been touring with my hour already so it's been a lot of me sort of initially when I was touring with my hour it was an hour of jokes there was sort of an there was you know it, it flowed there's an arc in its own way but it wasn't until I talked to my other friend Mike Barbiglia, you know who also who consulted on the project um that I was like, God, I've been toying with this hour of jokes and I have this story about this intruder who came to our house three times in the same day. And I just don't know how to like add that in the hour, you know? And he was like, that's three acts, three times <laughs> in the same day. And I was like, oh my gosh, right. Sometimes you just need to tell somebody else. And, you know, Mike Birbigli is a great person to tell. Yeah, he's great at that. Yeah, and so then I just started hammering at that as sort of the arc with the jokes that I had written and also writing new jokes that can go with it. Um, and so, you know, I'm always thinking about the audience whenever I write jokes, you know, I'm always thinking about them. And so it, it wasn't like discussions as to how to, you know, um, make it more tailored for like an HBO audience or anything. It's just more like human to human. Would this speak to another human? Uh, would it make them laugh? Would it make them feel and think, um, That's, you know, that's, I think that's just there because that's how I write jokes anyway.
1: Yeah. I I love that there's so many themes and callbacks and things that that you tie together and run throughout the special. um, And it does feel really different than a lot of other specials in that way. Um, One of them is, uh, you talk about mind tricks uh, as something that kind of comes up uh, repeatedly throughout the the special. And I was curious about where that idea came from or how you decided to make that a a sort of running theme. Throughout,
2: yeah. I mean, sometimes you, you know, look at your life and your day, even your day to day, you know, we're creatures of routine and habit and things we were taught from our parents or our family. They're creatures of habit and routine. And so, you know, as you even Storytell or tell jokes, you know, you will see a running theme of like, okay, why am I the way I am? (laughs) Why do I react to things this way? Oh, it's because of this. And then what's, why is, why do they act the way they do consistently, you know? And then, and then, so it's really just digging deep like that and realizing, you know, and mind tricks at the time I was like, I don't even know if that's a term. That's another (laughs) thing I do. I make up words all the time. Um, And one of the sub themes I think of the special is taking all the things that used to make you think made you a freak, you know, and using that as your superpower, realizing that that's your superpower. And one of the things for me is, um, and it's not like highlighted in the special, but it's just how I talk and do comedy. I make weird noises with my mouth. That's just how I (laughs) how I communicate, because it's not like I have a vast vocab I didn't do well on the SATs, ACTs, or whatever. I feel like were those the tests? I don't even know. <laughs> but you know, I'm not like an academic, and so so I'm glad mind tricks two words <laughs> actually means something. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's just uh, tricking the mind, or you know, um, I don't know, psychological warfare sometimes. <laughs> things <laughs> that things that yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I just put those two words together, and I was like, that's how I can best describe what's going on with how I was raised by my family and how I'm going to um, continue the legacy of Mind Tricks. My family raised me on Mind Tricks, these Mind Tricks, you know, yeah, and if you're an immigrant or children of immigrants, you might be able to relate, right, yeah, because we love our families, right? Yeah, they're just so seemingly generous. There was like, eat, right? Eat, please, eat. Did you eat? No please eat 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 it eat 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 did you eat no? no I didn't think so eat please eat now eat eat did you eat no please eat please eat 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 please eat did you eat no please eat 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 did you eat no I didn't think so I cook now eat please eat 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 and then the next time they see you they call you fat
1: yeah, some of it seems like it must be a sort of survival mechanism um, for you, and, and especially everything, you know, as you said, growing up, um, you know, I don't know, people listening might know your story somewhat, but you uh, you immigrated to the United States, to, to Los Angeles, right? Um, as a 10-year-old, um, coming from, you are born in Taiwan and then uh, lived in Japan for a time.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, I mean, that must've been an incredibly hard transition to, to come to the States at, at 10 years old. And I know there was a lot of adversity that went along with it. So, um, can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, moving somewhere is already big. Finding new community, new friends is always big. I feel like even as adults, we're always still navigating that, you know, at someone's party, you know, Gosh, I have a new interest. Hopefully this new meetup group accepts me. I hope, I, I you know, I came to this bar alone, but I hope to meet somebody, even if it's just a friend, you know, like you're always constantly feeling that. So that's always hard, just moving. Um, But then to like another country and having not known you were moving, that was sort of the intense thing for me because my grandma didn't tell me we were moving to the States. She told me we were coming here for a two month vacation because she just wanted to protect me, but in turn, she traumatized me. <laughs> That's how it works. You know, sometimes you go, oh, it, you know, you, you put things off. Um, somet- uh, sometimes to protect someone, you know, uh, finding out the truth later for the person can be way more damaging and intense. Um, but, uh, yeah, so having moved here, not being prepped, To move here because I thought I was going back to Japan in two months. Yeah, that was really intense. And then so suddenly having to shift gears, you know, I didn't say goodbye to my friends and family, my dad in Japan, you know, but I can't go back because we came here without papers. So if we leave the States, we can't come back. We're undocumented. So suddenly it was all these stresses as a 10 year old, you know, and then, okay, so I better learn English and get to know the culture and make friends. And at the same time, the Family members I was living in the States with were Taiwanese Americans. So they spoke Mandarin. So I was also having to learn Mandarin at the same time to talk to my uncle and aunt and that side of the family. So it, it was just a lot. Like my I have a big head, like physically. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I'm in wardrobe or something on a set or something, I always have to warn them, hey, like if I have a hat, if my character has a hat, you like you might have to custom make it. You know, and I don't know. I don't know if like my brain grew a lot during that time <laughs> because I had to soak in so much. But, um, and of course, having a big head doesn't mean you have a big brain. It can be all bone too. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, tangents, I'm just thinking. Yeah, but yes, that was an intense time because of all of those factors.
1: Well, as you were taking in the culture and, and learning about, you know, what it what it meant to be here, how did comedy come into the picture for you? Was it something that you were seeking out um as a kid, or or when did you first start thinking about comedy as something you were even interested in, let alone something you thought you might be able to do?
2: Yeah, I loved entertainment. I loved like pop culture. I was watching like Chelsea lately. I my uncle, when we were staying in his place, I was we were living in his garage. He set us up with cable. And so at least I had all the channels. I loved MTV, TRL, I loved watching music videos, I loved watching performers, and I loved, would even watch Howard Stern and stuff. And so those were comedic voices and Chelsea Lately, Chelsea Handler, you know, was a comedian and she had comedians on too, Guy Brenham, Fortune Feimster, Natasha Leggero. And so I was sort of exposed to it, I guess, during that, you know, and and then um, a few years later, maybe in middle school or something, Uh, Someone from church handed me a DVD of Margaret Cho's comedy. And that was the first time I really saw stand-up as a form on its own. That was cool because I knew entertainment and comedic voices and comedy existed. But to see stand-up comedy where it's one person holding a microphone, holding court, and it was someone who looked like me, and that's all, it was just her for an hour. I was like, oh, that's a job? Like that's a form of entertainment and I was like enticed. I was interested the whole time I was laughing. Um, so that that's when I was first exposed to it. But I didn't really think I could do it until later on, after that, way after that.
1: And what but that's was when that? I was exposed. Yeah. And what was that um what was the catalyst to get you on stage to actually start doing it yourself?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I had dropped out of undergrad and I went through my first breakup, I enrolled into community college, and I feel like, and I, I I had moved out of my mom and grandma's garage or my uncle's garage, and I think during like a big change like that, when you feel like, oh, well, what do I have to lose, that's when you do something that you've always wanted to at least try, because you're like, wow, you know, the love of my life is not in my life anymore, and I'm such a failure, I couldn't finish UC Riverside. Gosh, the easiest UC to go to, you know? (laughs) And you just feel like, you know, gosh, I just like wasted a lot of potential. And so why not try comedy? No offense to comedy. But that was the time I decided to try
1: it. (laughs) When you hit rock bottom.
2: Yeah, because it's like, well, and then you also have a lot of feelings and thoughts and you're going through a lot of self-awareness. So that's actually a good time to actually try stand-up comedy, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess if you feel like you have nothing to lose or you feel like... uh... You can't be embarrassed.
2: Why would you try stand-up comedy when you're at your happiest? What are you <laughs> going to talk about?
1: So what what did you talk about when you got up uh, those first few times?
2: I was I think I was doing I was trying to be like very Tignotaro. I was very deadpan and Yeah. I'm not a fast talker, you know, and so it worked for me anyway. Um I think at the time, you know, I was sort of gosh, talking about some race stuff but mm-hmm. like trying to spin it on its head a little bit yeah to still like what is it divert expectations is that even what's divert me i don't even know <laughs> but you know like i was trying to
1: yeah be surprising know. in some way
2: still yeah i mean i guess that's what comedy is you know with set of punch lines um but uh yeah so that's the kind of stuff i talked about i was doing very like deadpan like this guy asked me Oh, he found out I was Japanese, and he asked, "Oh, I have a really good friend who works at Mitsubishi. Do you know Tom?" and I was like, <laughs> "Tom, no, I don't fucking know Tom. I know Gary like I do jokes like that.
1: <laughs> it seems like your, your on stage persona has definitely evolved since then. You're so much more uh physical on stage um." And, you know, you sort of take up, take up a lot more space probably than you did um, when you were doing sort of those deadpan um, jokes at the beginning. Does it feel like that has been a, an evolution for you?
2: For sure, yeah. People say it takes 10 years to really find your voice in comedy. And I think it's true because at first you might be trying to sound like someone else. At first you're just trying to grasp the art form mm-hmm. and getting good at even joke writing. And so sometimes, you know, and you're watching a lot of comedy Hopefully, you should be if you're starting comedy. There's been people who are like, I actually purposely don't watch other comedians, so I don't sound like anyone else. But I think it helps. It's good to consume the thing you're going to try to do. And so it does take time to figure out. Because when you're doing stand-up, you're not actually talking necessarily as yourself. You're still a performative version of yourself. In real life, when you're being yourself, for the most part, and you're conversing or making people laugh, there's someone to banter off of. It's a conversation. Stand-up is already like a sterilized, like a very, you know, it's already a heightened version of yourself that you have to play because there's, you're, you're just, there's no conversation. You know what I mean? No one's talking back to you. Um, and so, so of course that's going to take a while to figure out what do you sound like when you're talking on your own, but being funny and, you know, and making through lines happen and thought-provoking, maybe sometimes, maybe even not, but just writing. You know what I mean? How, what, do you, what does that look like? And that might take a while to figure out. And some people get it immediately, but, you
1: know. I thought it was really interesting that you, it was about, f- I think, 15 minutes into your new hour that you talk a little bit about your name. <laughs> Keep your head down
2: and blend in as much as possible. At least that's what my family would tell me. And then they named me Atsuko Okatsuka. <laughs> And then they went on to choose English names for themselves. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> or Linda.
1: And I was curious if that's something that you used to ever open with or sort of address the top, because I remember talking to um, Aparna Nancherla, um, and she, we talked about how she would kind of almost uh, apologize for herself at the beginning of her set. She would say something like, I know I'm surprised I'm a comedian, too. Um, mm, to Sort mm-hmm. of diffuse, uh, you know, what people's expectations of of what a what a comedian was, or or even just like confusion about her name. Um, is that something that you ever did, or or something that you've had to think about at all?
2: For sure, yeah, because the whoever was bringing me up would always get scared at my name and <laughs> say something weird or completely different person's name or something. So I always had to prep something to, you know, you always have to call it the elephant in the room as a comedian before you go into your performance or else it's, uh, you know, that's part of comedy. You have to. And so, um, yeah, I used to say, yes, uh, no, my name is Atsuko Okatsuka. And that is why I used to go by Stacey. Um, <laughs> and I would go into my set.
1: Yeah, you have that great bit from your album about how the teacher gave you the name of Stacy, right?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. And I did used to go by it. At school, uh, I was given a new name, Stacy. <laughs> yeah, it was a name given to me by my teacher. Uh, she refused to learn Atsuka Okatsuka. Uh, she said it was too hard to say, so she gave me Stacy. Yeah, and it got so bad to, to the point where I would write my name on my homework assignments, Atsuko Okatsuka, and she would come over and tape over it, Stacy. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I didn't know what was happening at the time, you know, so I went home and asked my grandma about it. I was like, Grandma, what's going on? She was like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's called uh, racism. <laughs> I don't do that joke anymore. People get my name right now. I think also times have changed and, you know, different, Definitely. differently named comedians. Um, as people consume comedy more too, and it's just you, like a bigger cesspool cesspool of people doing comedy and different kinds. Of... I
1: think cesspool has a bad connotation, but oh really?
2: Okay, yeah. <laughs> I say yeah. Well, you know, I heard that one time, and now I'm repeating it. Uh, <laughs> that's how my words work. No, a different different groups of people doing comedy with different names, and so it helps. You know, people care to. At least ask or for the most part, and I just kind of go by Otsco when I go on stage now too, so
1: and I think it also in a way um you know that you've you've made it to a certain level when people are when people know your name and and have figured out how to say it I mean there's a lot of comedians, actors I think who've gone through that
2: for sure, yeah, and I think it's great, and another Osco came up to me after a show and told me she uh, people started knowing how to say her name because and that's how she found out a found out about me it was they were saying that there's a comedian named Atsuko and so that's pretty cool and she was like oh wow like and so waiters random people she was you know Starbucks employees she was like oh wow and and that's cool that that's an extra something I can do for people
1: coming up Atsuko breaks down her unique ability to go viral online whether it was inadvertently performing comedy during an earthquake or actively creating the Beyonce-inspired drop challenge with her grandma. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with some of the stand-up comedians who helped inspire Atsuko, like Margaret Cho, Tig Notaro, Mike Birbiglia, Chelsea Handler, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Atsuko Okatsuka. In terms of your comedy career, do you feel like there was a, a first big break or some first big opportunity that you got that really changed things for you?
2: Gosh, you know, they, they're constantly coming in different random waves. That's what I love so much about comedy and my fellow comedians we're such gosh we're such um weirdos and th- there's no one path you know what i mean to doing comedy we yes and you know or sometimes an earthquake hits while you're doing a stand up set that's what i did too it's so many things um you think it's going to be the netflix stand up competition show oh maybe that'll be the yeah. next yeah <laughs> and then it goes know, away then it goes away you know and then netflix is a joke festival has you running around doing all the shows and doing your hour you know pandemic hits and you go oh well maybe this is where i uh you know cuz i had a quibi show before that you know and so you just think every step you're going to think oh this quibi show is going to be it no never mind quibi is barely no, a nobody's thing nobody's
1: quibi show was it was, did anything for them i don't think
2: totally yeah and then the pandemic hits you go okay everyone's on you know everyone's hurting right now but I turned inwards and worked on my hour that I really wanted to tour with, you know. And uh, and I also garnered followers. It's like making silly videos. Sometimes that boosts things. And then finally I was able to tour and sell tickets. And, you know, and then that did well enough. And then Netflix noticed, you know, and then HBO noticed. You know, it's just, yeah, I don't know what the initial thing was because it's and so many people helped along the way so many good people fellow comedians bookers who believed in me you know um my husband you know what i mean who who says no i'll work with you i'll make sure that your videos look good i'll film them i know how to do this you know it's it's so many things so many steps
1: yeah i wanted to ask about that earthquake clip cuz that that's an example of going viral for something that you could never have planned, or you know, obviously um, had no idea that was going to happen. Can you uh, can you tell people what uh, what happened for anyone who hasn't seen that clip?
2: Yeah, it was twenty nineteen, July fifth. I remember because um, July fourth, the day before, <laughs> that's how dates work. <laughs> uh, July fourth, there was an earthquake then too, and we live in L.A. where we're always talking about earthquakes, and they do hit. And yeah, there was like a 6.8 magnitude earthquake on July 4th. And then July 5th, I was on stage at the Ice House Comedy Club in Pasadena when I was entering stage and I was like dancing up on stage because I get excited to be on stage. And as I was dancing, that's when the earthquake hit. But I didn't know because I everyone was screaming. I thought they were screaming for my dancing. So I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh, me? <laughs> oh, stop it. And then I realized they were screams of terror. Um, and people were like, it's an earthquake, earthquake. I think it was a 7.1 magnitude. And uh, so, you know, immediately I went into jokes about it, but also wanting to make sure everyone was okay. So I did at first say, oh, shit, I thought I was making that happen, you know, with my dancing, got laughs. But then I made sure to stop everything make sure everyone's
1: okay well it was it was very impressive that you were able to to joke through it
2: you know it's truly that's what we train for comedians and my whole upbringing it's like i have a mom with schizophrenia i lived in a garage in hiding for seven years i was undocumented for seven years i haven't seen my dad in forever my dad's on his third marriage i lost i just lost my stepmom i have have siblings that don't talk to me because my mom was abusive to them like I mean, at a certain point, you know, it's like, what's an earthquake? Are you kidding me? Like, during a stand-up set, stand-up, which I do multiple times a week, every night, and we have to deal with drunk hecklers and stuff anyway, Mother Nature, I I got it. No problem. You know what it feels like to come up dancing and then everyone's like, stop it, you're shaking the earth. No joke, no joke, yesterday, there was an earthquake yesterday, right? It was the morning, we were, me and my husband were in bed. My husband, no joke, rolled over and he said, are you masturbating? (laughs) (laughs) And and I I promised to God, I really was about to, you know? I I was, I was, but I was like, I am not, I am not powerful enough for a 6.6 magnitude. I will take that as a compliment. Oh my gosh, Jesus Christ, we started off rocky, you know? Um...
1: Did the experience of watching that clip uh, go around and get attention sort of give you a taste of of what it's like to have that um, you know viral fame experience and make you want to find other ways to do it?
2: Um, no, that wasn't the takeaway. I thought it was wild. I was like, oh, wow. You know, you do comedy for so long and uh, my comedy, not bad, pretty good, actually. <laughs> but, you know, apparently during an earthquake, it's out of this world, you know? And so I was like, it is funny. That yeah. is, it is funny. That is what it sometimes happens, what it takes for people to um, notice you. And then they go, oh my God, and she has other stand-up clips up and these are great, <laughs> you know? Um so, but I love chaos like that, you know? Sometimes it takes a drop challenge, which I also started earlier this year by accident. I'm never going, I, I'm i always going, how do I connect to people? How do I um, make it so that it's like fun for the masses? But I'm never going, how do I make this viral? Because I don't know how anything really goes viral. It has to hit people at the right time, I guess. And so I've had viral moments, you know, like the earthquake or the drop challenge um, other videos I made with grandma during the pandemic another different video I made with my grandma like 2018 things like that but um yeah you know they're they're always funny a little bit to me cuz I'm like what this okay <laughs> yeah.
1: so did you feel that way with the drop challenge what was the story behind starting that
2: me and my, my me and my grandma were just shopping in little tokyo of los angeles and I love that song by Beyonce, Partition. It had been out for years, but ever since it dropped, I was like, gosh, that, ooh, yeah. ooh, That bass drop <laughs> is so cool. And like me and grandma always like to make videos anyway, just for fun, you know, for our followers, you know, just to be like, hey, you know, hope you're having a good day. Again, why I got into comedy, you know, to make sure other people have good days. I think it's a service industry. Um, but Yeah, and so we were just having fun, and I was like, oh, okay, wouldn't it be fun if, like, we're walking around little Tokyo, there's all these shops and stuff, and, you know, in my head, I'm singing that song. I was like, what if I just, like, sometimes, like, drop, you know, whatever we're doing while we're walking, while we're picking up groceries, while my grandma's just standing there, I just drop in front of her to the beat, and it was just like that. All our videos take, like, 30 seconds to shoot.
1: (laughs) Is that that ever frustrating that the thing that gets the biggest is the thing that took 30 seconds and the thing that you work on for years and years uh, maybe doesn't get as popular as the thing that took 30 seconds to make?
2: It could be, but I find it refreshing. I actually find it really refreshing because I love raw energy. I am such a big believer in raw energy and preparing, of course. I practice, practice stand-up especially. I write, 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 and I practice at home to my plants. They die, you know, (laughs) and I go and bring it to stage. Um, Yes, I'm such a nerd about stand-up comedy and writing jokes, and I think that part is really important to me, but there's nothing like raw energy and being down for that when you're on stage too. And so, yeah, it's actually freeing, I think, that people like seeing the DIY-ness of something the maybe not so professional aspect of it you know um isn't that why people like snl too you know is that like something wrong could go happen you know and it's that raw energy I, I really love yeah it was it was cool to see because it all happened during this pandemic too and i was like yeah we needed this
1: what does your grandmother think about all of this i mean she's been starring in your in your videos in different ways for a while now um is she is she happy to be part of this stuff or what what is what does she make of it all
2: she's understanding yeah she's picking up on it because you know anything hollywood industry entertainment it's so far removed from anything our family has ever been a part of and so for grandma oh my gosh it was especially a lot what do these views mean why don't they equal money why doesn't <laughs> it pay yeah, that's a good question. I'm entertaining people for free when I post things on social media, you know? And uh, and then she really saw it, I think, and it all kind of came together for her when she came out with me to shoot my HBO special in New York because then she saw the crew and the director and the people that came out for me and all these people working to make my special happen. And we flew in first class and we'd never done that before, you know, from garage to first class. And she was like, the the, the champagne is free and the meal is free. My, <laughs> my my seat reclines, I can lay flat on a plane, you know, and it was, it was so cool to see. And I think she was really understanding then too that this whole thing is a racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not well, a racket, but it's like, what? You can really just, you can really write jokes and do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in a way, it's like you—you you know your comedy was good enough to get this special no matter what, but do you think that the videos and, and all of that attention that you got for that stuff did play a role in, in making the special happen and, and getting to where you are?
2: All of it. Everything you do plays a role, and... In- where you are today. Every single thing. It's just, you know, I'm an open book and so I'm so thankful because it is scary to be an open book. This is me, I like this song, I like dancing like this. This is my grandma, I like dancing with her, we have fun. (laughs) Because she was always a caretaker and she didn't always get to play. And now she gets to. This is my mom, she has schizophrenia, I love her. This is my husband, you know, this is who I am. You know, these are my fears, these are my weird quirks. I don't speak English correctly still. <laughs> <laughs> this is me. This is my haircut. This is my actual haircut as a grown woman, a bowl cut. Yes, this is me. <laughs> it's all scary, but you know, it, like, that's how the fan base grew and that's how people came out to see my comedy. Yeah.
1: You do find ways to, to make even something like your mother's uh, schizophrenia funny in the special, um, which can't be easy in a lot of ways. Um, how, did you, how did you go about trying to find a way to, to, to find comedy in that?
2: It took a lot of time and it honestly took the pandemic because, yeah, everyone was looking inwards more and thinking more and self-reflecting more. And I was doing the same. And, you know, really wanting, I was seeing a lot of people and my mom, you know, gosh, during this time, it's like people, it's not just a pandemic. People are going through depression, bipolar, other mental illnesses like my mom. And now they're isolated and you know, maybe they can't see their loved ones, elders. Sorry, I got really sad just now. It was like my mom and grandma live 20 minutes away from me, but there's so many people who, you know, were like, oh gosh, I didn't get to say bye to my grandma because she passed and I couldn't be near her. And so that all that made me really want to make things better for everyone even more. And that's where my place of comedy always comes where I go my mom's not the only one suffering from this my husband's mom also has schizophrenia and um if i can at least speak from my experience and make people laugh about it not just laugh about it but also normalize it you know yeah yeah
1: and i think for anyone who's who watches your special and is going through something similar it it really does help to to hear someone talking about it in that way I mean and finding, you know, lightness and, and joy in something that can be so difficult.
2: Yeah, totally. And that would make me so happy.
1: Um, so what I want to do now with the rest of our time is our our segment called the first laugh. We'll we'll try to lighten things up a little bit. Uh, oh sure, yeah. But um, but um thank you for sharing all of that. Um so I want to go back. Um, we talked a little bit about your early, you know, comedy influences, but when you think all the way back to your childhood, what is the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid?
2: I think as a kid, I really loved. I, I you know, I was living in Japan. There's this comedian. He's not a stand-up comedian. He's he's a comedian uh, named Shimura Ken. He, he actually passed away during the pandemic with COVID. But uh, he's like a physical comedian. He did sketches, and that's who I grew up watching. Um, Yeah, so I remember laughing a lot at his sketches.
1: Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh?
2: Yeah, I think I kind of started getting hints at it, you know, even as a kid. Uh, But it wasn't until, like, I was 19 that my then-boyfriend told me, I think you should try stand-up. I was like, oh, like, literally no one had ever said those words to me before. Um, Yeah, and so that sort of gave me the permission. You need to hear it, I think. You need to hear actual words sometimes, you know, because I could feel it. I knew I was making people laugh. Like, I remember... Like in the sixth grade, saying something in class that made everyone laugh about how our teacher had been dating her boyfriend or her—you know—they've been together for like 15 years or something—and she was not; she was absent one day, and people in class were like, "Oh, oh, it's because Miss Nash is like, you know, eloped or something, probably. Finally, like they got married." And I was like, "They've been together 15 years. Ain't nobody proposing or something like that." <laughs> and everyone in class laughed. Because it was also, like, unexpected coming from me, you know, I was a little I was a little quieter because, I don't know, I was embarrassed of my English, the way I spoke, and, you know, um, fitting in and stuff like that. But, yeah, it wasn't until I was 19 when my boyfriend said that that I was like, oh, maybe, okay, thanks, because I've been watching and I loved it. And I was making people laugh enough for him to at least say that. In retrospect, I think he was trying to get rid of me, but... <laughs> Because <laughs> that's not something you say to a person you care about or love, you know? Yeah, hey, you should try stand-up. Wait, do not
1: ever say that to someone you love. But why not? Why Why couldn't you say that to Maybe someone you, you love? Can. Maybe you can.
2: Maybe at that time. At that time.
1: <laughs> because
2: that was what? 2010? Something like that. Not a great time to... It wasn't as like diverse and stuff. Comedy.
1: Yeah. Was it harder to harder to break into then?
2: Yeah, me driving out to, because I lived pretty far from like open mics and shows as well, because I lived in the valley of Los Angeles, Santa Clarita Valley. It's kind of a drive. And so I would have to like late nights be driving to L.A. proper to stand in an alleyway trying to (laughs) do three minutes of jokes, you know, and you might not get called up till midnight. That's how women go missing. You know what I mean?
1: Did it work? Did he get rid of you?
2: Uh, yeah, because I was having to be gone. I mean, it was a drive, and then I was waiting to get on stage, and then shows would go late. You know, you got to be out every night and stuff. Yeah, yeah, kind of. He kind of did.
1: You defied the odds, though. It worked out,
2: right? Yeah,
1: jokes, jokes still on me, though.
2: <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, jokes, yeah, I don't know. I guess jokes on him. I don't know.
1: Once you started really doing stand-up, do you remember the first joke that, or bit or something that that really worked that you could keep going back to um, that you felt like was really connecting with an audience?
2: I think it was like my vibe in addition to it. It was just like, just the way I was being deadpan and the vibe. I think people would just laugh, even me going on stage. Um, But the first thing I would say in my first ever stand-up sets were, I'm Atsuko, I drive a Toyota, and I work at a Japanese restaurant. And I don't think I would say anything really after that. And <laughs> it got laughs because it, it was like me going, wow. You know what I mean? It's like in the silence, everyone's, including me, being like, yeah, that is pretty wild, you know? <laughs> and and then I think I go, uh, I went, yeah, I just wanted to get that out there or out of the way or something like that. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that getting laughs because it's like, Yeah, Jesus, like you do
1: everything, Japan. Do you remember the first time you met one of your comedy heroes and what the experience was, the the story of of meeting someone who you really looked up to in the comedy world?
2: Yeah, when I met Margaret Cho, um, because I started, uh, I co-founded this all Asian American, mostly female stand-up tour called Disoriented Comedy. So as I was saying, right, like when I started stand-up, like 2010 or whatever, it was like dark alleyways and, <laughs> you know, only 12 comedians will be known at a time kind of thing, you know? And, um, you know, especially like Asian American female stand-ups, it's like, I feel like Ali Wong was starting to sort of be in people's zeitgeist a little bit, but like a little bit, you know what I mean? Well, it
1: was still so, early.
2: Yeah. So like, you know, for people like, for other people like us, it wasn't so easy to get stage time. We weren't, you know, we had to like extra prove and it's like, but they want us to maybe talk about certain things still because that's what they know about us, you know? So they don't want us to just do like observational comedy because that's for, you know, not us. You know what I mean? No, why don't you talk about being Asian kind of thing? And so it was just like a lot of places where it could be limiting. So we started our own tour and made our own space and made our own shows happen. Um, and our goal was to, well, at, you know, when we came back from the tour back to LA, we would have Margaret show at our all Asian American comedy festival headline. And she was there and she came and yeah, and we met and now we're friends, me and her. Um, but yeah, that was, that was like, if, felt like a nice arc you know yeah totally because she was the first comment comedian I saw too
1: do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now but really was not funny when it happened
2: um gosh um that makes me laugh now
1: hmm anything that comes to mind
2: oh I don't know I mean I did do like America's Got Talent one year maybe 2012 and I was too early for that, for sure. I flew to Texas because I got through to the taping round. Like, I just submitted a tape. and They're like, okay, cool. Next, um, next up, you're going to be doing it in front of Howard Stern, Sharon Osborne, and Howie Mandel <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, for America's Got Talent, the live taping with an audience of 5,000 people in Texas. And it's like, I'm barely, like, barely... <laughs> No, like, you know, I'm such a new, new, new comedian, you know. It's like you
1: sent in the tape not thinking they would actually, that that would actually happen.
2: I was like, maybe. I don't know. It's free to submit. (laughs) I'm thinking trillions of submissions get, I don't know. I would immediately get to tape you know what I mean okay you're doing it because usually do it in, in front of producers first behind closed mm-hmm. doors or right, something like right, you don't right. just go get televised immediately so I was like well maybe I am like pretty good and I have some <laughs> kind of fun impression you know or you know um yeah so Yeah, I had like a minute and a half. I was still doing my deadpan thing. So a minute and a half was tough. That's like barely one joke that I could get out because I'm going so slow. Like the way I delivered that I'm Otsko, I work at a Japanese restaurant thing. It was like that. America's Got Talent don't want that. Okay, they want...
1: (laughs) They don't think that's talent.
2: They want you to catch grapes in your mouth. They want you (laughs) to be a contortionist. Do you eat fire and slit your stomach in half and come back to life they want that
1: it's hard to compete against that
2: oh yeah so i went after uh contortionist twins you know <laughs> and then i go out there i'm doing my dead pants slow ass delivery you know strangely only howard stern x'd me everyone everyone else was still like you know at least trying to figure it out but it was like a whole stadium of people standing up booing me. Yeah. And at the moment I was like, Oh my what? Oh my, wait, what? Like it was like weird. I was in shock. And now I'm like, Yeah, that is not that it's not that it's funny now, but now I'm like, you know, what what was any of us thinking <laughs>
1: that is, it is pretty funny well thank you so much for for doing this and i really really loved your special and i think uh i think a lot of people are going to love it as well um so it's been really great talking with you
2: thanks so much matt it was great talking to you too
1: all right thank you
2: bye everyone
1: all right, I really did enjoy that, and I hope you all did too. So I want to send another big thank you to Atsuko Okatsuka for joining me on this episode. Her new stand up special, The Intruder, is streaming now on HBO Max, and she will be performing at SF Sketchfest on Friday, January 20th. You can get tickets for that show and others at AtsukoComedy.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.